0: This is Imperfect Paradise, People vs. Karen, part three. The story of a Latino couple who was falsely accused of a crime by a so-called Karen and their quest to hold her accountable. The level of
2: what she did to us, the level of hate and racism in 2020 when this happened, is unacceptable. I'm your host, Antonia Cerejido.
0: On the last episode, we heard about the connection between a QAnon-linked campaign that uses the hashtag Save the Children and stranger danger among white parents. My purpose in sharing this is to simply raise awareness. Like, I think that moms were going to Michaels or Target and they were legitimately afraid that their children were going to be kidnapped at any moment. If
2: you had picked a different couple, you might have gotten away with this. But unfortunately, you picked us, and I'm not letting it go.
0: After an investigation, Sonoma County District Attorney charged Katie Sorensen with three counts of false reporting of a crime. Now, in part three of our series.
3: So, today is day one of the Katie Sorensen trial, and I'm actually walking in right behind Katie and her husband. I recognize her from her video that she made.
0: This is LAist correspondent Emily Guerin heading into the courthouse in Santa Rosa on April 18th, 2023.
3: She is wearing all beige, brown shoes, tan pants. She has a beige handbag. Her husband's wearing a blue button-down and blue pants and a notebook. And we are all walking up to the courthouse right now to start the first day of the trial.
0: By this point, it's been over two years since Katie Sorensen falsely accused Sadie and Eddie Martinez of trying to kidnap her kids. And now, finally, the trial is about to begin. Emily takes it from here.
3: When I got inside the courthouse, I saw Sadie Martinez sitting on a chair in the long, loud hallway, and I went over to say hi. I'm
2: a little nervous. Um, I've never had to do anything like this before, so it's, my anxiety is a little um, up there. But um, it's important for the people to hear the truth, for her to be held accountable. How did you decide what to wear? Um, I don't know. I feel like a dress always just is a go-to, so I threw a nice little it's a Target dress. <laughs> and my Target boots, nice little denim jacket. Could you sleep very much last night? I did not sleep at all.
3: You didn't sleep With at five. all? I was... You have hives. Oh, my God, Sadie. Yeah. Sadie was taking the stand today. What are you planning on saying? Just, this didn't happen. <laughs> um, we don't know Katie.
2: Never saw her before. and None of this really ever happened.
3: The thing about this case is that what's actually on trial is not the thing most people heard about. It's not about Katie's Instagram video. This case is only about what Katie said to the police. She's been charged with three counts of false reporting of a crime, one for each of her interactions with the Petaluma Police Department. So the question is, did she fabricate her story or did she truly believe her kids were in danger? And if so, was it reasonable for her to feel afraid? In other words, it's Katie's emotional state that's on trial, a white woman's feelings. From LA Studios, this is Imperfect Paradise, People vs. Karen, Part 3. I'm Emily Guerin. The trial took place in the Sonoma County Superior Court, which is about 20 miles north of Petaluma. It's a big beige cube on a street called Administration Drive, which is kind of like an industrial park for government buildings. Each judge gets their own courtroom, and courtroom 10 was Judge Laura Pasaglia's. As we waited to be let inside that first morning, I tried to figure out who was who. There were the jurors with their little blue laminated name tags, off by themselves. There were the lawyers in suits and ties. There were bailiffs in sheriff's uniforms. There was a reporter for the local paper, the Press Democrat. There were eight people who I presumed to be Katie's family, all huddled at the end of the hallway. And then there was this woman standing next to me, who I really couldn't place. Her name was Melanie Verduzco.
1: So what brought you here today? I have just been following the case, and I am just dying of curiosity to know what her defense is. I can't understand what it could be, um, so I had to see for myself. <laughs> okay. So, did you Melanie like snuck out of
3: work to be here. It seemed like a lot of people in the area were following this trial. So tell me, sort of going back, like, what did you first think when you saw Katie's video?
0: So when I
1: first saw her video, I was like, oh, my God, that's my town. You know, I, I know exactly where that happened. Um, but the things she was saying were so hard for me to believe as a mother. Usually people don't assume, like, a pretty blonde lady is going to make up a story about people trying to kidnap her kids. So people were quick to believe her, but yeah. I just didn't. <laughs>
3: How much do you feel like it really like kind of like made its way around town?
1: Uh, I mean, it, it, everybody knows about it. We call her Kidnap Katie. You do? Yes. <laughs> so, okay. Hashtag Kidnap Katie for everything I've ever posted about it. You know, like barbecue Becky. Right. Can, yeah. So okay. she's Kidnap Katie.
3: And then the courtroom door opened. The judge had denied my request to record, so I turned off my phone and I took out a small notebook and pen. The courtroom was pretty small. There were two rows of seats in the back. Maybe 30 people total could fit. The lawyers sat in the middle of the room, and Katie Sorensen sat to their right. The jury sat on the left. There were eight men, four women, mostly older, and all white, except for one Asian man. Sitting in front of everybody was the judge, Laura Posaglia, She was in her mid-40s and had long blonde hair that she wore in a ponytail over her black robe. The trial began with the prosecutor's opening statement. His name was Robert Weiner. He wore a dark suit and kept his salt and pepper hair slicked back, and he spoke in a calculated manner. He faced the jury and told them, essentially, look, nothing that Katie said happened actually happened. As the evidence will show, there was no attempted kidnapping. Katie was an aspiring influencer who fabricated a sensational story to go viral so she could gain followers and sell them things. In Katie's report to the police, she focused heavily on Eddie Martinez's appearance, and her fake story had a devastating effect on him and his wife, Sadie. Find her guilty. And then it was defense attorney Charles Dressot's turn. He was boyish-looking with strawberry blonde hair, and he spoke so quietly I had to lean in to hear him at times. Dressot reminded the jury that this incident took place in late 2020, peak COVID. He said that Katie was extremely anxious at Michael's that day, so she misinterpreted Sadie and Eddie's behavior as threatening. He said Katie did not knowingly file a false police report. She really believed she was in danger, although she now realizes she was wrong. Find her not guilty. What struck me, immediately, was that both the prosecution and the defense agreed that no attempted kidnapping had ever happened. Sadie and Eddie were completely innocent. Now the question was, had Katie lied? And could the prosecutor convince the entire jury of that, beyond a reasonable doubt? That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise, People vs. Karen. I'm Emily Guerin. You're listening to Imperfect Paradise. I'm Emily Guerin. The first piece of evidence that prosecutor Robert Wehner presented in Katie Sorensen's criminal trial were recordings of Katie's three interactions with the Petaluma Police Department. He began by playing her initial call to dispatch on December 7th, 2020.
6: I was just at the Michaels here in Petaluma and a couple tried to kidnap my
3: children. Then we listened to her follow-up interview with a Petaluma police officer.
4: If you were presented photos of any of these people, would you be able to recognize them? Yes. Okay.
3: And finally, her conversation with two officers at her house a week later.
4: So, 100% they reached for my stroller. 100% they were saying things that they shouldn't have been saying about my kids.
3: The jurors followed along, reading the transcripts, while the rest of us strained to hear the extremely quiet audio. And then the first witness took the stand. Sadie Martinez. She walked in, raised her right hand, and promised to tell the truth. She started out giving serious one-word answers, but after a few minutes, she began to crack a few jokes. The prosecutor asked if Sadie had noticed Katie in the store. Sadie said no. She has five kids, and she totally zones children out. People in the courtroom laughed. Seriously, though, she said, the shopping trip had been totally ordinary. She could barely remember it. But now, because of Katie's viral video, we are forever labeled child abductors, Sadie said. Katie judged us on our looks alone, and it's not okay. The prosecutor then asked Sadie if she identifies as Latina, and whether she felt Katie had racially profiled them. Sadie said yes. I glanced over at Katie. She was watching Sadie, her face totally blank. Because Sadie was a witness, she wasn't allowed to be in the courtroom for anything except her own testimony, which meant she wasn't able to see her husband, Eddie, testify the next day. When Eddie Martinez took the stand on day two of the trial, the prosecutor unveiled a new piece of evidence, surveillance video. There was video from inside Michaels and from the parking lot. I had never seen this surveillance video before, so it was really fascinating to see what actually happened and just how close Sadie and Eddie and Katie had all been to each other. So here's what the video shows. It shows Sadie and Eddie walking into Michael's three minutes before Katie. Sadie's in a purple coat and Eddie is in his Black Lives Matter hoodie. It shows the is standing in the checkout line right behind Katie. And by right behind, I mean six feet away, because they were on their little social distancing markers. It shows them paying at the same time at two different registers, their backs to each other. Eddie glances over his shoulder in Katie's direction, and then he just so happens to walk out of the store right behind her. They go to their respective cars, and Katie pops the back hatch. She and her kids are behind the car, out of view of the security camera. At this point, Eddie and Sadie walk towards Katie, as they pass behind her car, they stop for two seconds. Then they walk back towards their car, and then they double back towards Katie. There are three seconds where Sadie and Eddie are out of view behind Katie's car. Those three seconds are crucial to this trial. That is when Katie claimed that Eddie tried to grab her stroller. Here she is talking to the police on December 14th, 2020, on her back porch. That
4: part without a shadow. No, There is absolutely no rhyme or reason to someone taking steps forward and reaching. That is without a shadow of
3: a doubt. The police had pressed her on this point multiple times. Was she sure that Eddie's intention was to grab her stroller? Here's Officer Brendan McGovern.
4: Is there any possibility that the action that you saw of him possibly reaching was was him giggling or waving at your child? My child was facing me, so there's okay. no way there was no child so you, facing me. So it, it looked as though he was possibly reaching for the stroller? Yes, and they, I, there is no excuse. I would love to hear. There is a one for taking a few steps forward towards
1: the stroller, a few steps back, a few yeah. steps forward. And
3: but there actually was another explanation, an excuse, as Katie put it. As Eddie explained on the witness stand, after going to Michael's, he told Sadie he was hungry. So they started walking towards this Chinese restaurant because he wanted potstickers and crab rangoon. They took a few steps in that direction, and then Sadie looked at her phone and realized it was only 10.30 in the morning. The restaurant wasn't open yet. Eddie was bummed, and he made a big, sweeping, ah, shucks, kind of hand gesture. This hand gesture, which, again, came out of disappointment for the lack of Chinese food, is what Katie interpreted as Eddie trying to grab her stroller. Katie's lawyer had Eddie demonstrate this gesture over and over. He even had him stand up so the jury could get a better look. Ah, man, Eddie said repeatedly, and people in the courtroom laughed. Afterwards, I caught up with him and Sadie in the parking lot, and he reenacted it for me.
5: So we started walking towards the Chinese spot, and you told me, uh... Hey, it's too early. They're closed. And then that's when I, I made that gesture. You yeah. know, I put my hands up and went, ah, man.
2: Like, it oh, is who he is. Oh,
5: they're closed. Oh, man, you know. It was clear to me that this case
3: was about how a white woman had interpreted the body language of a Latino man with a shaved head in a Black Lives Matter hoodie. But now I was realizing it could hinge on a single gesture. Katie found Eddie's hand movement threatening, so she called the police. Day two ended with the former police lieutenant, Ed Crosby, taking us through the surveillance video again, frame by frame, using a wooden pointer stick. It was long and tedious, and I saw one juror had fallen asleep. I went home tired. Hello, hello. So it's day three of the Katie Sorensen trial. This morning, I'm pretty sure we're going to start out with Lieutenant Ed Crosby on the witness stand again. Um, The third day of the trial was a deep dive into Katie's social media profile. The goal, it seemed, was to flesh out her alleged motive. The whole, Katie is an influencer who made up a wild story to gain followers theory. The prosecutor called up a PowerPoint that was kind of a highlight reel of Katie's post to Instagram and Facebook during 2020, and he asked Lieutenant Crosby to read through them. And just picture this scene. A big man with a handlebar mustache is describing these whimsical pictures of Katie blowing flower petals at the camera, or Katie wearing a T-shirt that says, Roar Like a Mother, while Katie sits 15 feet from him, stone-faced. As the prosecutor clicked through the slides, there were a lot of pictures of the essential oils and cosmetics and supplements that Katie sold through her business, Motherhood Essentials. There were comments she made on other people's posts, saying things like, I'm looking for any way I can to make some money to pay for my son's homeschooling program. Or, I'm looking to focus more on consulting, influencing, eek, for clean living. I watched Katie wash herself on screen this humiliating, incomplete portrait of her. She had been expressionless the whole time, but now she took off her glasses and started to cry. The last slide of the presentation was an Instagram post of Katie standing in front of a theater matinee, holding a sign that said, let's be the generation that ends child trafficking. Lieutenant Crosby read the photo caption, slavery still exists, hashtag save the children. At this point, mid-afternoon during day three of the trial, Prosecutor Robert Weiner said he was done presenting evidence. It was now Katie's lawyer's turn to call his witnesses to the stand. And he had just one, Katie Sorensen. So we're on a 15-minute break from court right now. Um, I'm just standing out in the hallway, and um, Katie has just been on the witness stand. Hold on one second. I have to stop talking when the jurors walk by. Let me go somewhere else. I walked over to a corner of the hallway near this weird little historical diorama that had 150-year-old handcuffs. So nobody in the jury could overhear me making my little voice memo. Okay, so Katie has been on the witness stand. The prosecution is done calling witness. Katie's testimony was by far the most riveting part of the trial. She hadn't spoken publicly since the week she posted her Instagram video more than two years ago. When she took the stand, she had her hair down and her tortoiseshell glasses on. She looked over at the jury and smiled and introduced herself as a mother. Over the course of the next half hour or so, she reiterated three main points. One, she truly believed her kids had been in danger that day at Michael's. Two, her feelings of fear had nothing to do with Sadie and Eddie's race or ethnicity. And three, she's since realized she was wrong about what happened. She said, quote, it was an odd series of coincidental events that I misinterpreted. And um, basically, she no longer thinks that anybody tried to kidnap her kids. And that once she saw the evidence of what had actually happened in Michaels that day, she changed her mind. In my notebook, I wrote the phrase, an odd series of coincidental events that I misinterpreted. I circled it and drew a star. Now, it was prosecutor Robert Wayner's turn to cross-examine Katie. The room was tense. Katie's mom was sniffling, and Katie's husband was bent over, scribbling in a notepad. The prosecutor began with three straightforward questions. Eddie never tried to abduct your children, correct? Yes, Katie said. Sadie never tried to abduct your children, correct? Yes. You were wrong about that. Yes. The prosecutor then spent the next few minutes scrutinizing Katie's mental health the day she went to Michael's, which was Katie's explanation for why she had misinterpreted Sadie and Eddie's behavior as threatening. She said she was anxious because of COVID. He asked her if she'd been treated for anxiety around that time, if she'd had a panic attack, or if she was taking drugs or alcohol. She said no to everything. Then the prosecutor switched to asking her about being an influencer, a term Katie said she did not identify with. But she agreed that her goal had been to build an online business where she could work from home while also taking care of her kids. She also agreed that she was trying to boost her followers in order to sell more products. Then came one of the more tortured exchanges of the entire trial. I described it afterwards, sitting in my car. You know, he said, like, why did you say Eddie looked rough looking? And her attorney was like, objection. And then the judge overruled that. And she said the manner in which he carried himself throughout the store. And then the prosecutor said, but you were moving around the store in the same way, right? Like going up and down the aisles? And she said yes. It was Eddie's demeanor, not his appearance, that was rough-looking, Katie later explained. The prosecutor had asked Sadie Martinez earlier if she felt Katie's accusation was racially motivated. But he never asked Katie directly if she racially profiled Sadie and Eddie. Instead, Robert Weiner honed in on the Katie is an influencer who did it for the clicks theory. At the end of Katie's testimony, both sides rested their case. The judge dismissed us for the weekend, and I walked out into the sunshine and took notes in my car. It's day four of the Katie Sorensen trial. It's Tuesday. And this morning, the district attorney and Katie's lawyer are going to present their closing statements. Okay, I'm going to turn off my mic because I'm going inside. The prosecutor went first. Robert Weiner stood directly in front of the jury and told them that Katie Sorensen was guilty. He said that she fabricated this entire story because she was an influencer who was trying to boost her online presence. And he said she doubled down when confronted by the police on December 14th, the day after she posted her video. But he said that it's basically impossible that she misinterpreted events. He said no reasonable or unreasonable person would have interpreted the events in the manner in which she did. That's a person who's hallucinating. He said this report was false. She knew it was false. She lied to the dispatcher. She lied to Officer McGovern. She lied to all of her Instagram followers. She lied to KTVU News. And she lied to us. And that was the last thing he said. Then it was Katie's attorney, Charles Dressot's turn. He opened this binder that contained many pages printed in a large size font. He spoke for almost an hour, and he even went into the history of reasonable doubt back to medieval times. He asked the jury, if you think there is any chance that Katie could have concluded that someone tried to kidnap her kids that day in Michael's, then you must find her not guilty. And then he took the jury through why he thought it was reasonable for her to feel like her kids were in danger. He dwelled in particular on Eddie's big sweeping hand gesture. He said that Katie, in her heightened state of COVID anxiety, certainly could have misinterpreted this gesture as Eddie trying to grab her stroller. And he ended by saying... You know, two things could be true at once. It's true that there was no attempted kidnapping, but it's also true that a series of random and coincidental events did occur that caused Katie to misinterpret the events and come to the wrong conclusion. And then he said to the jury, if you have a reasonable doubt right now, you must acquit her. The lawyer sat down and I noted the time in my notebook, 2.56 p.m. The judge gave the jurors instructions on how to deliberate. She told them that in order to find Katie guilty, they had to unanimously agree, beyond a reasonable doubt, that she had knowingly lied to the police. Each time she spoke to the police was to be a separate decision. And then the jury stood and filed out a special door in the back of the courtroom. The rest of us walked out into the bright, empty hallway. I had thought this case was going to be kind of a reckoning on so-called Karen's. Instead, the prosecution had turned it into a referendum on influencers gone wrong. I asked Robert Winner's boss, District Attorney Carla Rodriguez, why they didn't bring up race more during the trial. So her language wasn't racially based during the police investigations
2: and in her Instagram posts. So. We could all assume different things based on what Eddie might have been wearing or what Sadie looked like, but none of that could be
3: proven in court. So he just stuck to the evidence. Katie told police that Eddie was maybe Hispanic. She said Sadie was white. She used words like not clean cut and rough looking. So even though lots of people on the internet had immediately jumped to label Katie as racist, the prosecution never addressed racism head on. If Katie was a Karen, The prosecution didn't think it could be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. There wasn't enough information
2: uh, anywhere to prove a hate crime or something else. It was making a false report to a police officer, and that has very specific elements. Nothing
3: related to race is required to prove that that crime was committed. But had the prosecution proved that a crime was committed beyond a reasonable doubt? I thought Katie's lawyer had done a pretty good job making the case that this series of odd coincidences, as he put it, had legitimately frightened Katie. I was starting to think that she might not get convicted of all three charges, but would she get off entirely? I bought some peanut M&Ms from this sad vending machine, drove home and came back the next day. It's day five. I'm standing in the hallway outside the courtroom And uh, this morning at 10 a.m., the jury started deliberating. And I have no idea how long that is going to take. So it's now noon. The jury has been deliberating for two hours this morning. So it's 2.28 p.m., and I just saw the bailiff walk back into the courtroom, uh, followed by Katie's lawyer. And um, Katie's entire family suddenly got up and they walked towards the door. And I saw Katie's mom hug Katie. I think they might have been praying. They all had their heads down in a circle. Here comes the district attorney, Bob Weiner. So I think we're about to find out what happened. That's coming up after a break. You're listening to Imperfect Paradise.
0: From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading e-commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash paradise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash paradise now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash paradise.
5: Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: This is Imperfect Paradise. I'm Emily Guerin. By mid-afternoon, on the fifth day of the trial, the jury had reached a verdict. The bailiffs opened the courtroom door, and we all sat down. The jurors walked in. One of the four women on the jury handed the judge a manila envelope. The judge opened it and passed it to her clerk. The room was totally silent. I looked over at Katie's family. They were clasping each other's hands. Katie's stepfather's head was bowed, eyes closed, as the clerk began to read out the verdict. The first count was Katie's initial phone call to a police dispatcher on December 7th, 2020.
6: Uh, please reporting an emergency.
3: The one she'd placed from her car as she drove away from Michael's.
6: Uh, I was just up on Michael's here in Petaluma and a couple tried to kidnap my children
3: the one where she'd said that two rough-looking people had tried to kidnap her kids the verdict not guilty Katie's husband started crying the second count was Katie's conversation with officer Brendan McGovern outside the Petaluma police station there there the one where she joked that her kids are very good looking
1: my kids are very good-looking. <laughs>
3: the verdict Not guilty. I heard more sniffling from the direction of Katie's family. The third count was Katie's conversation with the police at her house on December 14th, the day after she posted her video. The one where she'd bounced and rocked her son. The one where she'd waffled between doubting and doubling down on her story. The verdict? Guilty. Katie's family seemed stunned. No one did or said anything. Katie was totally expressionless. The bailiff walked over and she stood while he put black metal handcuffs on her. The judge set Katie's bail at $100,000, which was pretty high for a nonviolent misdemeanor. She was escorted down to the Sonoma County Jail, where I later learned she sat for a few hours until her family could get a bail bond. Her sentencing hearing was set for June 14th. The judge thanked the jurors for their service and dismissed the courtroom. In the hallway, Katie's mom, Jill Turgeon and her mom's husband, Eric, walked straight over to me and a reporter named Colin Atagi, who works for the local paper, the Press Democrat. Do you want a statement now? Jill said, combative. I started recording on my phone as Colin asked Jill a question
1: How are you guys doing right now?
4: Well, I, I guess a little bit confused.
3: Jill had tears in her eyes, and she seemed furious the jury hadn't interpreted the evidence the way she had. So you feel it was un- unfair, it sounds like. Well, I,
4: I feel like the, the evidence was not portrayed properly.
5: Uh, you want to talk about what we kind of discussed earlier about how the effect this has had on your family, you
4: know? Oh, it's significant. I mean, we are not a wealthy family by any means. Um, I mentioned him earlier. Um I am a widow. My white husband passed away about three years ago, and 100% of his life insurance is what is funded this this trial. This is not something that is easy for us. We have received so many hate mails. We Deferous. have received death threats. We have re- telling us that our daughter should kill herself, um, mentioning that um, her her dad should be ashamed of her and he's rolling over in his grave. They have they have criticized her mothering of her special needs child. They have. It's going just, after our
5: grandkids.
4: It's just, its it's absolutely atrocious. And we have never once, ever once said anything negative about anybody in this case. So it's taken a huge toll.
6: How was Katie doing up until this very minute? Like her
3: emotional state? Yeah, yeah. affected her. she
4: has been very strong. She has been very strong, and she's continued her positive attitude, not only towards the system, but also towards the Martinez family. She has never had any animosity towards them. In fact, she has felt that they have been just as much a victim in this, Mm -hmm. as she has. Thank Uh, you. All right. Thank you.
3: Not long after, I got a call from Sadie. Remember, she wasn't allowed in the courtroom, but she'd just found out the verdict. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um,
6: so how are you feeling? Um, I'm happy. I'm happy with the outcome. I feel like she will learn from this horrible decision, and many other people do.
3: You're happy, even though she got uh, even though she got off on the first two counts?
6: Yes. As long as she was found guilty in some fashion, um, yes.
3: Sadie was extremely calm. She seemed almost removed from her emotions. Interesting, because I wasn't sure what you were going to think, honestly.
6: Well, honestly, I would prefer to have been found guilty on all three counts. But um, no, as long as she's held accountable in some fashion... That was all I really cared about because I don't think she's ever going to find any kind of remorse if she is not held accountable. So to be found guilty, at least on one count, is is okay with me.
3: So it is June 29th. I'm back in Sonoma County. I'm walking to the courthouse in Santa Rosa And this morning is the sentencing hearing for Katie Sorensen. Katie's sentencing hearing was delayed two weeks. And by the time I went back to the courthouse, it had been two months since the verdict. We all walked in and took our familiar seats in the back row of the courtroom, facing Judge Pasaglia. Sadie and Eddie were there, too. It all happened pretty quickly. Each side argued for what they thought Katie's sentence should be. Sadie stood up and read a short victim's impact statement, saying essentially that if Katie had apologized and shown remorse, that would have been enough for her. But she didn't, and so Sadie was looking for some accountability. And then the judge decided. Katie was sentenced to 30 days in jail, followed by 60 days of work release. And then she'd be on probation for the next nine months. During that time, she couldn't use social media, and she had to take racial bias and social media ethics training. I looked over and I saw Sadie and Eddie holding hands. Eddie was looking down, audibly sniffling, but Sadie had her head held high. She wiped her eyes, once. Katie stood, and once again allowed herself to be handcuffed. We all left the courtroom, and the bailiff walked her down the hallway towards the jail. I'm recording, by the way.
2: Um, talk about an emotional day.
3: I met up with Sadie, Eddie, and their friend Kenyatta Reynolds outside the courthouse. We stood in the shade of a big oak tree. There was construction going on next door, so it was a little bit loud. I saw you guys crying a little when the sentence came out. I'm not it's gonna lie. Emotional. It, it was. It was. I,
2: I, like cry a, I, I cry
5: with watching The Lion King. I am <laughs> emotional.
3: I hadn't seen you cry.
2: No, I cry when I get mad. I. I Don't cry very often. And it was emotional. I mean, it's been a long two and a half years. Eddie, how were you feeling when you heard the sentence?
5: Um, A sense of relief um, and sadness at the same time. Reason being relief that justice was served for us. Uh, The judge made a clear example of, um, you know, if you choose to take Katie's path in any way or fashion that... Look what the outcome could be. Um, the other part of it was sadness. Being a parent, to have someone be away from their kids for so long. They didn't ask for this. And now to go, what, 30 days and wondering, where's mom? Where the hell is mom, you know? I, I don't wish that on anybody. So that's my sadness on all this.
3: So you didn't, you didn't want her to go to jail?
5: Uh, No, I did. Uh, I would have been happy with five days, three days. I would have been satisfied with that because she does have kids, you know, and maybe that would have taught her and she could have learned that, hey, I I can't do this.
3: I later saw the pre-sentencing report that the probation department had made. They had asked Sadie what she thought Katie's sentence should be. Sadie had said up to 30 days.
2: Do I feel bad for her children? Yes. But somebody's going to learn from this. If it's not her, it'll be somebody else. Somebody will see this and say, hey, you know, think twice before you post some, some crazy lies on, online.
3: Because of California's sentencing guidelines for nonviolent misdemeanors, Katie only served half of her sentence and spent two weeks in jail. I asked Sadie and Eddie if they were disappointed that the prosecutor didn't bring up race more during the trial. I knew that Sadie really wanted Katie to be held accountable for what she felt was an obvious case of racial profiling. And that hadn't really happened.
2: Originally, in the beginning, I was really bothered by it. But no, I kind of understand how the legal system works and I have a better understanding for it now. And it's all about what you can prove. There's no need to convince anybody that anything is racial when you live it. I mean, we know, and as long as we know and we're the ones experiencing it, it's not our job to educate everybody else and constantly speak on it. I know it's about race and that's enough for me.
3: In early 2021, after Katie's Instagram video came out, Sadie was asked to join a police reform commission in Petaluma. She proposed a law that would make it a crime to make a racially motivated 911 call. Laws like this already exist in a handful of other cities, including San Francisco. Their law is called the Caution Against Racially Exploitative Non-Emergencies, AKA the Karen Act.
2: Being able to call the police and report a false crime about a person of color should be
3: a crime. Sadie's initial proposal didn't go anywhere, but now that Katie's been found guilty, Sadie wants to try again. She's planning on gathering signatures for a petition in support of a local version of the Karen Act, which she's calling the Sadie stance. With Katie in jail, Sadie's prosecute Katie campaign is over. Her TikTok account, which she started to keep people updated on the case, has switched over to videos of her eating hot pot and walking on the treadmill. A week after the verdict, Sadie posted a triumphant video of herself in selfie mode. Her hair's up in a ponytail, her makeup's all done, she's got a drink in her hand, and she's staring directly into the camera with a fierce look in her eyes. This Snoop Dogg song is playing.
5: Last but not least, I want to thank me. (laughs) I want to thank me for believing in me. I want to thank me for doing all this hard work. Sadie
3: you. captioned her video, If you know, you know. Hashtag Katie Sorensen. For Sadie, getting to where she is now took perseverance. Here's what she told me after the verdict came out We fought hard for this. So it's
6: nice to know that our hard work paid off. Yeah. And I had to put myself out there. It wasn't easy.
3: Yeah. I mean, you were on a campaign for years.
6: (laughs) I was. I was. I was not going to let this go. And, you know, she wanted a, a free pass. and Not today, Katie. Not today.
0: On the next episode of Imperfect Paradise, we dive deeper into the argument made by the prosecutor in this case that Katie was a momfluencer gone wrong. What is the history of mom influencing? And how did it become such a loaded term?
2: What started as a sort
1: of
0: vulnerable, speaking truth to motherhood sort of thing has turned into a shiny, picture-perfect version of motherhood. That's on the final episode of Imperfect Paradise, People vs. Karen. Listen to new episodes of the podcast every Wednesday. Or tune in on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. on LAist 89.3 or LAist.com. This episode of Imperfect Paradise was written and reported by Emily Guerin. I'm the show's host, Antonia Cerejido. Catherine Mailhouse is the executive producer of the show, and Shayna Naomi-Krockmull is our vice president of podcasts. Rebecca Katz is our intern and the producer of this series. James Trow provided additional production. Jens Campbell is our production coordinator. The editor of this series is Sarah Kate Kramer. Fact-checking by Caitlin Antonios mixing and theme music by E Scott Kelly. The Imperfect Paradise team also includes Natalie Chudnovsky and Emma Alabaster. Thank you to Kristen Muller, Megan Garvey, Tony Marcano, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, and Leo g Imperfect Paradise is a production of LA Studios. This podcast is powered by listeners like you, donating as little as $5 a month, and we can only keep making more episodes like this one with your partnership. Support this show by donating now at LAS.com slash join. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism make Los Angeles a better place to live. LAS Studios operates within the homelands of the Gabrielino Tongva people. We recognize the painful history of displacement, settler colonialism, and erasure of the people, their language, and their sovereignty. Visit LAS.com slash land for more information. We encourage you to get curious about the land on which you live and work.